Are you prepared to stand trial and profess your guilt or innocence before the seven? We need to trust each other. We have so many enemies now. The Freys and the Lannisters send their regards. What do you want? I thought you knew what I wanted. Tell them what you did to her. Tell him! Are you afraid? Good. You're in the great game now. And the great game is terrifying. Welcome to Cinema Sugar Bombs. I'm your host, Dan, from SlipThroughMovies.com, bringing you sweet spoonfuls of movie news and reviews from a movie nerd who loves William Shakespeare right alongside Stan Lee. Aside from the usual three scoops of geeky goodness, there's the weekend box office results and the home video breakdown, talking about the latest DVD and Blu-ray releases. There's also the daily Netflix picks, plus the raised eyebrow segment with the review of last night's season finale for Game of Thrones. Let's dig into our three scoops first, after a word from our sponsor. There's only one way to make the coolest games even cooler. Game Genie. To start at any level. Game Genie. To play your way. Game Genie. Well, get this. Game Genie's got the secret codes for Mortal Kombat. And if you think Mortal Kombat is awesome now, what do you play with Game Genie? Because if you don't, you'll never know how far you can go. Now Game Genies cost less. Each sold separately for most video game systems. Our first scoop digs into Danish filmmaker Nicholas Wending Refn wanting to do a superhero film. He's been talking about this for a while. This is the director behind eclectic films like Pusher, Valhalla Rising, Drive, and Only God Forgives. He was out doing press for his latest film, The Neon Demon, and talked about which superhero he'd like to adapt. He's looking for a hero that doesn't have their own movie yet. Well, yesterday came news that he's got a bright idea. Refn wants to do Batgirl. While we've seen her before on screen in a small role in the Let's Try It Forget It Joel Schumacher Batman films, but we haven't seen a serious take on this superhero yet. For those unfamiliar, Batgirl is the daughter of police commissioner James Gordon. And once DC gets their Justice League out of the way, they'll be looking to other characters, and Batgirl would be an excellent option, especially with Refn behind the lens. Now, he isn't the most loved director and seems to split the audience with each of his movies, but he's got his own visual aesthetic that is quite striking, and his compositions are rather deliberate. Let's just say the guy blends the best of artsy with Grindhouse, and that's the type of Batgirl I'd like to see. As always, stay tuned for more news as it develops. Our next scoop digs into an upcoming original sci-fi. That's right, original, which is an extreme rarity in today's Hollywood, which is filled with sequels, franchises, and cinematic universes. I guess if you want to make an original film today, it helps if you got a big producer on board. I'm talking about Ridley Scott, who's producing Morgan, a 
brand new sci-fi flick that just debuted its first trailer. This one stars Kate Mara and is directed by Luke Scott, son of Ridley Scott. The story is about it being created from genetic material with high-tech experiments. This looks like a mix between Splice and Ex Machina. It proposes the question, what happens is when a supreme being realizes their power and realizes they're in captivity? Well, if you're a 90s B-flick like Species, they want to bust out. And that's what Morgan is all about. The trailer shows off this, the concept rather well and also gives a sense of the style from another director in the Scott family. Ridley Scott made a big splash in the sci-fi genre with his earlier works, Alien and Blade Runner, so perhaps his son can get his foot in the door the same way. I got my fingers crossed because I love uh, original content, sci-fi that asks us introspective questions that act as a cautionary tale, and on top of that, are filled with visual flair. Kate Mara is surrounded by an impressive cast that includes the likes of several noted character actors like Paul Giamatti. If you're curious to learn more, hop on YouTube and search for the new trailer to Morgan. Alright, for the final scoop, I've got another quick trailer review. This one for the upcoming Netflix summer show called The Get Down. This one's about the rise of hip-hop in 1970s New York. It'll get into the birth of a pop culture movement. There was a sizzle reel released a few months ago that uh, gave us a good idea of what to expect. And it made it seem like it had some Scorsese-type vibes, although instead of about gangsters, this is about musicians and all things hip-hop. The Get Down is helmed by mad scientist visual director Baz Luhrmann, the guy behind Leonardo DiCaprio's Romeo and Juliet, and the psychedelic musical Moulin Rouge. So he knows how to fill the screen with energy as well as impressive imagery. This new show looks to be based around an ensemble, but one of the most intriguing talents involved is a young rising actor, Shamik Moore, the star of the indie hidden gem, Dope. Another big name involved in this project is the rapper Nas. He's uh, supervising the musical content and giving this a stamp of approval. After all, he was part of the birth of New York hip-hop and its big boom in the 90s. While this doesn't look as hard-hitting as something like Straight Outta Compton, it's still important subject matter. It looks like the get-down is more focused on fun, but that doesn't mean there won't be any drama. Plus, we're going to get some great music. This is an interesting era that hasn't been totally overdone on screen. It's been years since Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. If you want to know more, hop onto YouTube and check out the trailers for The Get Down. This new show is set to debut in August on Netflix. Before we get into today's special features... Let's get into some trivia. What Nicholas Wending Refn movie helped Tom Hardy burst onto the scene? Stay tuned for the answer near the end of this episode. 
Now, a word from our sponsor. If kids like me took over the world, there wouldn't be any school. Better yet, we'll keep school, but it won't really be like school. Our favorite classes will be gym, recess, and marine biology, or we'll learn how to save the whales. As long as we're changing the world, let's change the name to World, because McDonald's will be the official food. We'll take all-day field trips to Mickey D's, which Randy Kretschmer will never go on, because he'll be in permanent detention. He picked on me in social studies. And, you know, let's get a cool gym teacher for once. You ready for a game of horse? Hey, that could happen. All right, it's Bud Day. Time to check out the weekend box office results. There were a few movies debuting this weekend, including the massive blockbuster sequel, Independence Day 2, Resurgence. It joins smaller newcomers, The Shallows, the 127 Hours Meets Jaws scenario starring Blake Lively, which was pushed up a week to debut on Friday instead of this upcoming holiday weekend. Then there was Free State of Jones starring Matthew McConaughey. Let's see how they did. The top five at the box office went like this. Number one, Finding Dory. In its second week of release, made $75 million, bringing its total domestic cum to $288 million in just 14 days. That's really impressive. But it's Pixar and it's a sequel. Then again, it was going against the new Independence Day. So you'd think it might have dropped a bit more. Independence Day opened with $43 million. So Finding Dory almost doubled this in its second week. I bet the studio's regretting not waiting for Will Smith for this one. Because surely the numbers would have been better. That said, Independence Day made $102 million overseas in its debut. And you'd think with, like, Jurassic World last summer that it might indicate fans have a, a good memory of these 90s blockbusters and want to revisit them. Alright, coming in at number three was Central Intelligence the comedy starring The Rock and Kevin Hart. It made $18.1 million, bringing its two-week total to $70 million. The Shallows debuted in at number four with $16 million, which I think is pretty on par with its budget, so it's set to make a profit. I'm thinking it might stay in the top five next weekend because it's your best opportunity to get scared at the theaters. Coming in at number 5 was the Matthew McConaughey indie drama Free State of Jones with $7.7 million. It just beat out The Conjuring Part 2 with that made $7.5 in its third week. Oscar caliber movies don't tend to break the box office, so top 5 landing in the summer is pretty admirable. The older audience is also a bit more patient, so expect this one to stick around for a while. Although, don't expect it to ever blow your mind with how much money it makes. The summer season's in full gear, and those that it predicted Independence Day would make the top 10 for the season just found out how wrong they were. Let's dig into our other Monday special feature, the home video breakdown, talking about the latest DVD and Blu-ray releases. Tomorrow is new movie day. And we've got a few worth mentioning. The highest profile debuting on disc 
is the recent comedy Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, starring Tina Fey and Margot Robbie. They play reporters in the Middle East covering the war. While this bites out a little serious, this is a satire about girl power in Afghanistan. This one didn't blow away the box office when it played in the theaters, but it looks like the perfect choice for a rental. Margot Robbie doing comedy might not be what you first expect. From the trailers, it looks like she has more than a few laughs. Tina Fey, meanwhile, you definitely expect the comedy from her. She's been going strong since she left SNL and 30 Rock, but she hasn't had that huge movie success yet. We'll have to wait and see what she has next, but for now, I'm thinking Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, or WTF, is worth checking out on demand. The next old video release I'm going to point out is an independent one, and it looks like a hidden gem. I'm talking about Rams. This is a European release about two brothers who raise sheep. They live on a, a gigantic property that's big enough for them to each shepherd their own herd. The thing is, they haven't talked in decades. So these are eccentric characters who don't really like each other. The conflict gets worse when their town wants to kill the herd to stop a virus from spreading. These brothers take a stand and aren't going to let the government take over their well-being. This is when they begrudgingly join forces to save their land, their family reputation, and their sheep. There's no big names in this. It's not... There's no transforming robots or alien invaders. This is just a character piece with its tongue planted firmly in cheek. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's definitely refreshing and would make for perfect summer viewing for the cinephile out there. If you're a true movie nerd that digs on the craft, you gotta check out Rams. The last highlighted new release is Eye in the Sky, a thriller starring Helen Mirren. This is about drone pilots and the trouble they can cause. I think this gets a little political while mixing in a little popcorn. I hadn't heard too much about this. It's not really something I'm excited for, but by the time it hits Netflix, I'll probably check it out. After all, Helen Mirren is an acting heavyweight. She likes to mix in the period pieces, the Oscar caliber stuff, with some fun movies like Red and the upcoming Fast and Furious 8. For me, this week in Home Video Breakdown, I'm saying check out Rams, and if you want to have some fun, check out Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Stay tuned next week for another edition of Home Video Breakdown. It's about that time for the Netflix picks of the day. First up, I got a documentary for you called The Battered Bastards of Baseball. As you can tell, this one's a lot of fun and it's for sport fans. This one's about a Portland minor league team full of misfits. Think of that 80s flick, Major League, where you got blue collar guys just want to play baseball but they have a hard time staying out of trouble. So they're not cut for the big leagues, but they definitely want to represent their town as wayward heroes. 
this true story has an interesting twist because Kurt Russell is one of the players on this team. That's because his dad runs the show. He's the general manager and coach of these battered bastards of baseball. The film follows their struggle to be taken seriously, get affiliated, and win the championship. And really, it's the spirit of this team that makes this story so interesting. If you like those ESPN 30 for 30 films, I'm saying hop on Netflix and start streaming The Battered Bastards of Baseball. For my next Netflix pick, I'm reaching into the way back the 1980s for the cult classic horror flick, Child's Play 2. This is the horror series that stars Chucky, the animated doll slash serial killer. Obviously, with this sort of premise, you don't really take the movie seriously, and it's a lot of fun. This is one you want to yell at the screen with a bunch of friends. It's also got that retro charm and the cheesy effects of yesteryear. A lot of people still know about Chucky nowadays, but I think that's more from the comedy-based direction the franchise turned into with stuff like Seed of Chucky. The original was more focused on horror, even though it had all those fun elements, and Child's Play 2 just turned up the notch on the original. If you're a fan of retro horror films, you gotta check out Child's Play 2. And if you're a way back movie nerd like me, you just might want to revisit it on a summer day. The best thing about Netflix is no matter what mood you're in, you're bound to find something cool. Thing is, there's so many options, it can be hard to decide which one to watch. Hopefully these little Netflix picks segments uh, help you out or point out some interesting movies you might not have heard of. Before we get into our final special features segment, let's hear another word from our cheeky little sponsor. Hey, what do you want from a high-powered blaster? Balls! More balls! Thunder Strike 20, not 3, not 6, not even 8. 20 rapid-fire shots. No waiting, no pumping. The 20-ball Thunder Strike 20, more balls than any other blaster. What's the matter? Out of ammo? Thunder Strike 20, balls, more balls. Thunder Strike 20, only from Tyco, batteries not included. Let's close out this episode with the daily special feature segment, the raised eyebrow for movie news that makes you go, what? Today we got a review of last night's season finale of Game of Thrones. That'd be season 6, episode 10, The Winds of Winter. With the longest episode ever, clock it in at like an hour and 15 minutes, all points verge. This season's been building up towards its climax, and it closed out a lot of those storylines. First up, For Whom the Bell Tolls. The episode starts in King's Landing with the Septon and the trial of Marjorie Tyrell's brother, Loris. The bell ringing over and over is a subliminal reminder of shame from last season. This scene is not only photographed beautifully, it's also edited to the score in a rhythmic sort of way. There's no dialogue as the stage is set. The camera just softly pushes or pulls roaming across the scene. This is the same director 
from last episode, showing that he could do big-scale battles just as well as a balletic introduction to a remix of the Game of Thrones opening theme. It's a bit more subtle with just simple piano chords. Our first storyline that closes up is Sir Loris, who's set to play Iron Fist in the new Marvel Netflix show. He confesses to all his sins, and in doing so, signs up as a spiritual warrior, getting a symbol carved into his forehead. Cersei's trials decks, but she stays at the Red Keep, refusing to go to court setting. There's a lot of cross-cutting going on here, as the maester is killed by a different type of little birds. The leader of the cult warrior gets killed down below, where all the barrels of that green napalm-like gel. Cersei watches in her blackout as the city is engulfed in green flames. This was something a lot of us saw coming earlier in the uh, the open seas attack. Tyrion used this flammable gel, which is stored below the Septon. Meanwhile, Cersei's son, Tobdid, the new king, is stopped by the zombified mountain. Cersei's protecting him from her terrorist act. Meanwhile, Marjorie tries to urge the court that something's up. If the king's not there and Cersei's not there, some, she, something bad's going to happen. And she was right. Too bad no one listened. The best thing about this is the high sparrow went up in flames. An unexpected result of this is that Tobdid, looking out the window like his mother, realizes that the sept is dead, his city is gone, his wife is dead. So he takes off the crown and jumps to his death. This, he, he does it rather calmly. And once again, there's no dialogue showing restraint. This was an unintended circumstance of Cersei's actions. But that's not all Cersei did. She also got revenge on the nun who tortured her. She has the nun strapped to a table and asks her to confess. She explains herself by saying, I do things because it feels good. She asks the nun if she remembers when she said her face would be the last thing she saw before she died. The nun says she's ready for it, but Cersei says it's not coming today. You're not going to get off that easy, and her death is going to come after some vengeful torturing. And this will see a nice parallel later on. Meanwhile, J.B. Lannister is dining with the phrase. Riverrun is now Walder Frey's. This slimeball won't be ruling it for long. By the way, there's sometimes you forget that Jamie Lannister is the bad guy. He's come a long way since season one, but this is the guy that pushed Bran out a window. Jamie won't return to King's Landing till later, but he'll at what he does, he'll see it bird to the ground. It makes you wonder if he thinks about what Cersei will do to have the throne, and will she even get his way in order to stay in power. Meanwhile, a couple other storylines get uh, closed out. Like Sab, he arrives at Old Town with Gilly and his kid. He delivers papers from Jod Snow that he's the new baster. And this library shows off the power of knowledge as books are a way to pass information to another generation. You really 
get the sense of Sam's enjoyment with books. He must be in heaven because this place is huge. It's like the Game of Thrones version of Alexandria. Back with John Snow, Davos confronts Belisandre about sacrificing the little Baratheon girl at the stake. She told Stannis he was the one and got him to kill his daughter to please the gods and make the prophecy come true. Now that Jon Snow knows, he has to decide on the punishment. Davos wants her executed, but Melisandre pleads, saying that she can help in the coming war, especially against the undead army. Snow meets them halfway and exiles Melisandre instead of killing her. Now that Snow has Winterfell, he has his parents' room prepared for Sansa. This kind of shows how much he believes in her and how much she's learned. Sansa decides to tell him about Littlefinger. They have to trust each other now about everything. Next up, the show zips back to Dord, where Marjorie's grandmother talks with the new Viper and her Sand Snakes. She wants revenge against Cersei for killing her family, including Loras and Marjorie. And who steps in to help with this pursuit of vengeance or justice but Varys? These storylines are all connecting quickly but really well. Meanwhile, Daenerys nearly has her ships ready. She talks to her boyfriend and asks him to stay in Marine to protect the peace. She wants to seem available for marriage to help make alliances down the road. This is a tough decision and the idea that she would turn down love for power scares even Daenerys herself. Daenerys is a brilliant strategist though, making tough decisions. She seems to have everything planned out down to the propaganda. For example, Slaver's Bay will now be known as the Bay of Dragons. She talks with Tyrion. You get a really good sense of scale with the sets here. It's, uh, it's emphasized with the framing while these two talk. And in a nice touch, Daenerys had a pendant made for Tyrion in the symbol of the hand. Once again, showing how much she trusts and respects this Lannister. Another storyline gets tied up with a neat little bow as we hop back to the phrase as the old man enjoys a meat pie. A servant comes towards and we realize that it's Arya wearing another face. She baked the pie made of Wilder Frey's children, serving up a dish of revenge Titus Adronicus style. Arya told him that her face would be the last thing he saw before he died. And unlike Cersei, she gets that vengeance right away, slashing his throat and checking off another name from her Kill Bill hit list. Back in Winterfell, Sans is at the Godswood, where she talks with Peter Baelish, a.k.a. Littlefinger. He tells her that he would do anything to sit on the throne and have her at his side. He's got this creepy sort of romance going with her, where she reminds him of her mother. He talks about who will rule the North and who people would rally behind he says that Sansa is the true daughter of the Starks, not some bastard born of a nameless mother. Which is a good time to cue the flashback 
we get to see what Brand is up to. Last we saw, he was on the run with his uncle Benjen. This episode, they separate because Benjen can't go any further due to his half-zombie-like transformation. So in effect, Benjen was kind of like a deus ex machina who just came out of nowhere to save the day earlier. Who knows, though? He may come into play later. Things get into big-time spoiler territory here when Bran touches the tree and flashes back to the past. He returns to that same moment where he tried to get his father's attention. He sees Ned Stark and follows him further towards the sound of screaming. It turns out that Ned's sister just gave birth to a child, and now she's dying. She makes Ned make a promise to protect the baby and raise it as his own. This baby is Jon Snow. His father was a Targaryen who had Ned's sister held kidnapped. So that means that Daenerys is related to Jon Snow. This is the true battle of fire and ice vying for the throne. With the dramatic irony of us knowing their relation, but they don't. So that means that Bran has some important information on his hands. And no matter where he ends up, it'll play a pivotal part in how Game of Thrones unfolds next. We're getting near the end of the episode, where Jon Snow urges the people that they can't wait out the storm because the enemy brings the storm. There's a massive meeting with the leaders of each house, and those that didn't fight in the battle of last episode ask forgiveness and pledge their allegiance to Jon Snow as the true king of the north. The North remembers, right? And while John seems a little stunned to have this sort of title, his sister Sansa seems to softly smile. The thing that creeped me out was she shared a look with Littlefinger. And we already know that he'll do anything to get the throne. Does that mean he would even kill her brother or pit Sansa against Jon Snow? These are some of the things we'll have to look forward to in next season, where the end Jamie Lannister returns to King's Landing to see the Septon burn down. We get to see Cersei take the throne. And I can't remember exactly how that prophecy from earlier unfolded, but I think it said she would rule, just not for long. The episode ends with Theon Greyjoy staring at his family banner on the open seas. He's part of a massive fleet made up of the unsullied, the Dothrakis, and the Dragons. That's not all. Varys is also back. And we know that he's working for Marjorie's grandmother and the Dorns to get revenge on the Lannisters. For now, Cersei's sitting on the throne. But Daenerys looks to be the best bet to take it over. Will she rule the land while her kin, Jon Snow, protects it from the north? There's only two seasons left of Game of Thrones, and they're going to be a lot shorter than we're used to. I think it's going to be six episodes one season, seven episodes another. Uh, This might mean that some episodes will be longer, like this one, but it probably means that they're bigger budgets, because there's so much that has to happen, and I'm sure the battles will get even more epic. This season may have felt a little more streamlined, but it moved at a a good pace, setting up storylines and finishing them out in a matter of 10 episodes. 
and each delivered with an impact. I'm sure everyone's going to have their theories about what will happen next, but I'm still hoping that Bran will be riding a dragon one of these days. I know he can easily shapeshift and go into the dragon, but I think a one of these winged beasts would make a good replacement for Hodar. You never know. If the Starks and Daenerys align with another to take out the Lannisters, maybe these dragons will split up and fight for different factions. The army of the undead that's coming with the snow is going to be a formidable opponent. And by the end of next season, there might not be too many players left in this Game of Thrones. Before I go, let's answer that earlier bit of trivia, where I asked what Nicholas Wedding Reffitt movie helped Tom Hardy burst onto the scene. If you thought Bronson, you thought right. This cult classic hidden gem isn't for everyone. It's about a prisoner who wants to stay in jail forever. He wants to be the most violent prisoner ever known. Everyone's got ambitions, right? And while there's a lot of violence and dark subject matter here, there's also a lot of dark comedy and satire. Tom Hardy has to play a whole range from the big, bald, badass to a soliloquy spewing theatrical alter ego. With Refn leading the way, this doesn't unfold as expected, and I think it's a big reason why we know about Refn and Hardy today. Rewind time and check out Bronson when you're in the mood for something totally different. Thanks for listening to Cinema Sugar Bombs. Stay tuned for Thursday, where we'll have our retro pick of the week and a nerdy hypothetical dilemma for you called Would You Rather? Art versus Popcorn. Until then... Stay breezy. You ever hear about the rising phoenix? Us living as we do. Upside down. The pale faced media tells us we all going to hell. But maybe we just the first ones to light the fire. Some try to snuff it out. But that's like oxygen to a flame. Get down is She wants to sing and you you're suffocating her. I wanna get out of the Bronx. We'll laugh and I'll tell you the story of love and how it is and the happiness in it, baby. Welcome back.
Yeah.